This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's World Wildlife Day on the 3rd of March, an annual United Nations International Day to celebrate all the world's wild animals and plants and the contribution that they make to our lives and the health of the planet. Malaysia is, of course, recognised as one of the 17 mega-diverse countries in the world, meaning it is one of the top biodiversity-rich countries and home to many animals that hold some of the world's superlative titles, such as the sun bear, the smallest bear on Earth, and the king cobra, which is the longest venomous snake species in the world. And among these very impressive animals, there is, of course, also the Malayan tiger, our clouded leopard, Asian elephant, pangolin, and so many more. So today on the show, we want to revisit some of our previous coverage on Malaysia's incredible wildlife from our mini-series, The ABCs of Biodiversity, where we explored why biodiversity loss is our loss. So first up, here's an interview from last year with Dr. Wong Siu Ti. He's a wildlife biologist and CEO and founder of the Bornean Sun Bear Conservation Centre. And no surprises, here he is talking about our Malayan sun bears. Okay, so well, one-on-one on sun bear. Well, first of all, I think people should know that these are the smallest bear species in the world. Okay, there are two different subspecies, the Bonin subspecies and the mainland subspecies. The Bonin subspecies, a full-grown adult male is about 45 to, uh, to 50 kilograms, mm. whereas the mainland subspecies, the one that you found that people see in, like, say, Zoo Nagara, they are double the size of our bear. You know, a full-grown adult male is about 85 to 100 kilograms. So they are a lot bigger. So this is, but yet they still are the smallest bear in the world. Okay. All of them are black color. They have very short, sleek fur, just act like a raincoat, you know, that survive, live really well in this tropical rainforest that always rained. Uh, they have very small ear compared to other eight, uh, seven bear species in, in the world. They have the tiny little ear and then uh, they have the longest tongue, I mean, relatively to their size. You know, their tongue can reach up to like 30 centimeters long. Really impressive. And then uh, they also have very, very long curved, cichlid-shaped uh, 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 claws, which is their very important tools uh, for them to survive in this rainforest. So all in all, you know, their whole body is literally adapted to the lifestyle in our rainforest. They are black color. They got good camouflage. It's not easy to see a bears in the forest. They got big long claws. They can like climb the tree with these long claws and so on. And then they are found across Southeast Asia, ranging from eastern tip of India, eastern tip of Bangladesh, southern tip of China, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Peninsula of Malaysia, Sumatra, and Borneo. Okay. So it's a tropical bear. Mm-hmm. And but before we get to the conservation, I mean, why why do they matter to us in the in the sense that why is their health you know related to our health and to the health of the forest? You know, what are those sort of interconnections? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, you know, people needs to know that we need the forest, and we not we just we don't just need any forest. We need a healthy forest. And our rainforest in Southeast Asia, especially in Malaysia and Borneo, you know, we our forest is the oldest rainforest ecosystem in the world, 140 million years. And it takes that long to reach a, a stable and equilibrium conditions where there are so many species of wildlife, wild animals, wild plants, you name it. You know, our forest is the most diverse ecosystem on earth. And all of these have reached after 140 years of evolution to a balanced, 
our equilibrium stage. Mm-hmm. And that these forests provide us with clean air, clean water, stable climates, provide us with all the, you know, uh, bio, bio uh, genetics that we need for medicine, for food and so on and so forth. And, and sun bear, because of they evolved in this forest for such a long time, they play like what I mentioned earlier, you know, they play, they play many important ecological roles as seed dispersal. They plant the trees in the forest after eating the seeds. They are eating termite. They control the termite population, preventing many trees from being killed by termite species. You know, they are uh, forest farmers in the sense that when they dig for like earthworms, they plow the soil, they enhance the soil nutrient cycle, and then they mix the soil easy for seedling or seeds to germinate and grow. And then they are forest engineer in the sense of when they're feeding on this uh, stingless beehive uh, or kalulu, stingless beehive build their hive inside a hollow tree trunk. And then after they excavate that cavity is later being used by hornbills and uh, flying squirrels as nests. So, yeah, and then they also are important food provider as well when they, you know, uh, dig on a termite nest or decay wood, there's something left behind. And then there are many species of wildlife like uh, like uh, bearded pigs, uh, like pheasants, like burning ground cuckoo, all take along this bear. So all in all, the presence of bear benefiting many wildlife and wild plant species. And what for us need is a healthy forest ecosystem. Without the sun bear, all of this equilibrium, all of this community that benefited from sun bear will be affected. If, say, for example, a termite population is not being under control, then you'll see experiencing many trees are being killed by, by, by termite, which is not cool, which is not good. The forest is sick and we don't want this kind of forest, you know. Uh, so so because all of this happened in such a short area, uh, a short of such a short period of time where the forest do not have time to to to, to balance you know that kind of impact yeah mm-hmm. so that's why we always want to keep the 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 forest community either plants wildlife species as intact as possible as you know the integrity of the forest ecosystem is extremely important in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think as you mentioned, um, you know, studies have shown that sun bear populations have declined by more than I think it was forty percent in a twenty-year period. But this was from just nineteen eighty-four to two thousand and four, right? That was a study I think that you were involved in. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a thirty uh, well decline for more than thirty percent for mm-hmm. thirty years. Well, that is the conservatively uh, estimation because that and there's until now not in not uh, don't we still don't have a a, 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 a range wide study of sun bear population in this area because it is so difficult to do that kind of study mm-hmm. anyway so we keep the the numbers as 30 percent the population declined for 30 percent or for more than 30 percent over the last 30 years which is the three generation times of the bear as a criteria for them to be listed as a vulnerable species under the IOC and Red Book listing. Okay. All right. Thanks for clearing that up. Um, but the fact is that, you know, they are declining. And, and of course, the main threats, I know, you know, habitat loss, as you mentioned, you know, deforestation. Um, am I correct? In, um, there are, of course, other ones. Uh, but maybe you can help explain what those uh, what the main threats are to the survival of sun bears. Yeah, okay. So sun bear, first of all, they are forest-dependent species. They live in the forest, okay? They cannot live in your orchard. They cannot live in plantations. They cannot live in your backyard. They need 
big forest because they also have a big home range, you know, in order to find sufficient food, yeah. So they need forest. When the forests disappear, when we do logging, when we clear the forest for plantation or any kind of human development, we literally destroy their home. Mm. So if you look at, if you, you know, anybody can easily go to open up Google Earth or Google Map and you can see our terrain. What happened to our forest? Gone, especially the lowland flat area, which happened to be, you know, most fertile, most diverse, they're all gone. First, of course, is the timber extractions. All of our, all of the big kayu bala, kayu bala in our forest is all tropical hardwood that fetch a lot of money in local and international timber markets. So these are the first natural resources to be harvested, to be exploited in in the first place. And then after that, the land are being converted into plantations, into human developments, and so on and so forth. So, so in that case, Sunday lost their habitat forever. So by far. Habitat loss is the biggest threat to the sun bears mm-hmm. across Southeast Asia. And then after that, when people go hunting, well, when, when people go uh, logging and clear forest, they enter the forest, daytime they do logging, nighttime they do poaching. Mm-hmm. So when people go into the forest, it brings in another threat, which is hunting, poaching. And then for sun bears, as a large mammal, the whole body has some kind of a value, commercial value to any humans. You know, the meat can be eaten and then their gallbladder are very high sought traditional Asian medicines. Their claws, their canine uh, are considered as souvenirs, you know, and then their baby is considered as very cute pets and all of that. So hunting and poaching is the second threat. And of course, uh, hunting for body parts and meat consumption. And then also with uh, pets keeping, baby bears, very cute. And then lately, you know, what I noticed is that, say, for example, in West Malaysia, we have a lot of uh, uh, root kills. You know, last year itself, there were three sun bears that I know of from, like, you know, search for Beruang, Langa, Mati. Mm-hmm. You know, there are at least three different incidents uh, of of sun bears uh, was 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 killed was end up road kill in West Malaysia and there are even more like say tapir, you know how rare is our tapir now today and yet you know with this kind of uh, developments you know when they are when our when there are more uh, township kampong being established road building become bigger and bigger and of course the vehicle that used the road is become more and more and also faster and faster. And for a lot of the wildlife that trying to survive in this landscape, it's just hard. They are not learned to cross the road. First, you need to look at the right side and then the left side and then the left side. And then, they, you know, for the wildlife, they don't do that. Yeah. And then a lot of them did not make it. And then for a species like sun bears, you know, where they have such a slow reproduction rate, this kind of human caused mortality, either from... Uh, habitat destructions, habitat loss from hunting and poaching or, you know, or, or road kills is just devastating to their entire population. They cannot cope with that kind of loss, you know. Yeah. yeah, so that's why they have become such a threatened species, yeah. Yeah, and everything that you just mentioned, all of it is linked to human uh, human activities, isn't it? It's basically we are the, we are the main reason for the decline in their numbers lah, in many ways. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. And and you did say that they are forest-dependent species, and I was reading that they're not only described as being forest-dependent, but particularly reliant on undisturbed primary forests. Is that also accurate? 
Yes, actually, sun bears are such a robust species. You know, means that they can adapt really well. Means that they can eat out. They can utilize a lots of food resources. And then, uh, and from our study, actually, I just published a paper uh, mm. last year talking about you know from my study in Danum, saying that hey, they actually more bears in lockover forests than in primary forests. Mm-hmm. So means that the the selectively locked forest is not clear cut. Okay. So in say in Sabah or in our uh, in Malaysia, the logging practice that we have in the past is actually selectively locked for the saleable timber stand and selectively locked for the hardwood species because they fetch, they have commercial value, and then uh, and then those forests after those big kayubala, big fifty meters tall, you know, uh, timbers has been removed. And then the forest is let alone to regenerate by itself. And then these forests, you know, if there's no further disturbance, the trees grow back. When the trees grow back, the, the wildlife come back, including the sun bears. Okay. So sun bears uh, found this kind of habitat actually uh, uh, quite important. Actually, there are more sun bears in this kind of local forest as long as hunting is controlled. And then, then in primary forest, because they can have more uh, food in there. There are more termites. There are more invertebrates. There are more uh, fig trees, for example. You know, all in all, and then sun bears are also found in all kind of forest types, from mangrove forests, from uh, uh, pisong forests, from limestone hill forests. As long as they can find food, and as long as they are not hunted down to extinction by people, they can thrive. You know, and in Sabah lately, a few years ago, I have a students working on the. On a, on, a, on a landscape is is the the whole landscape is planted with acacia tree and then with uh, small patches of like say riverian t- uh, area uh, along the rivers which is not converted into the acacia plantation but is still retain this uh, secondary forest and there are bears on that kind of patches mm-hmm. you know and some of the the, the area are uh, uh, identified as high value conservation area HCV forest. There are some bears that are surrounded by a uh, sea of uh, uh, acacia plantation. You know, that area hunting is under control, bears thrive. Mm. So for for any species like a sun bear, they should not go extinct because they are such a robust species. They can use all kinds of resources, you know, as long as they are not hunt they are not hunted to extinction. So so they should go they should be doing relatively well. Say compared to like giant panda, which they only have to eat like you know bamboo. Yeah. So 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 I I'm working with a species that is very easy to work with, that is very very easy to survive. Yet their numbers are so little right now because of our human activity. Sad to say. That was Dr. Wong Siuti, a wildlife biologist and the CEO and founder of the Bornean Sun Bear Conservation Centre, talking to us about our Malayan sun bears. It's a World Wildlife Day special here on Earth Matters. We're revisiting some of our previous shows, uh, you know, done in our series called The ABCs of Biodiversity, where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. So we're focusing on some of Malaysia's unique wildlife today. And after this quick break, we'll have more on clouded leopards. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. World Wildlife Day is celebrated on the 3rd of March annually uh, to give props to the world's wild animals and plants and their contributions 
to our lives and the health of the planet. So on the show today, we're sort of revisiting some previous shows we've done on Malaysian wildlife, uh, taken mainly from our series, The ABCs of Biodiversity, where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. Earlier, you heard from Dr. Wong Siuti about our Malayan sun bears. But now let's focus on clouded leopards, specifically the Sunda clouded leopard and the vital role that they play in maintaining Borneo's ecosystems. Here's Christian Gomez, a biologist and researcher who's currently attached to the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wildlife Crew at the University of Oxford, giving us a 101 on Sunda clouded leopards. So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Sunda clouded leopards, uh, they were only discovered as a separate subspecies in 2006. Uh, tell us what you can about yeah, that. Yeah, so Buckley Beeson was the person who wrote the paper. It was a phenomenal one because she basically proved that all this while we thought there was all one species and mm-hmm. it was just called the clouded leopard. Mm-hmm. But with very little genetic data and some morphological evidence, you know, just by looking at the skin colour, she proved quite deliberately and with lots of, you know, it's very clear that there was in fact two species. Okay. And here the, the context of what a species is important, right? Because it is highly debated. But two species basically means, you know, we are all one species. All humans are one species. Okay. The last time we shared a human subspecies was millions of years ago. Um, yeah. And so a species is a big deal. Um, and so now realizing that we actually have two species of cloud leopards in the world, mm-hmm. However, the only place the other species is found, right, is in Borneo and Sumatra. So it's this really tiny place because the cloud leopard is widely distributed. It's almost all across Asia. But all of that is one species. Mm -hmm. The only other place that has another species of cloud leopard is Borneo and Sumatra. So just to give you a bit of context of why the Sunda clouded leopard is a super critical piece of the evolutionary puzzle, right? Because it basically separated from this mainland population about 24 million years ago and evolved really distinctly. So there's a lot of evidence for evolution happening there. Sure. Okay. So that's that's really exciting, right? I mean, that was such an amazing discovery. And I guess, you know, what would you say are the key differences between the Sunda clouded leopard and the clouded leopard? Yeah. So the cloud leopard, there there are two kind of paradigms to think about this. One is in its habitat type, Mm -hmm. right? The composition of biology within it. So the mainland cloud leopard is is a player in the big cog of machines of other carnivores because where the cloud leopard is, there's tigers, there's common leopards, there's huge, there's snow leopards in some of them, some systems in Nepal especially. So it is sharing habitat with lots of other big predators. So from a behavioral standpoint, it behaves quite differently from the Sunda. Mm. Because in the Sunda, the cloud leopard is the big head honcho, right? He shares the habitat with nobody else. All the other cats are smaller and so take different prey. So we find different behavioral patterns. For example, in the mainland, cloud leopards spend a lot less time walking on roads, Mm. more time on trees. But in the island, these guys are like they're really boisterous. So they're just walking up and down roads all the time. Logging roads, main roads, big trails in the forest, they're always there. And that's the features that they're drawn to. Mainly because they have nothing to be afraid of. Mm, They're not competing with anyone, right? Okay, okay. Um, So that's a behavioral paradigm. From a, strictly from a aesthetic, you know, the way it looks, the Sunda is slightly darker. Mm -hmm. The mainland is lighter. The Sunda, of course, is larger because it doesn't have to compete. You know, it's got more resources the mainland tends to be slightly smaller. Uh, but that's the main thing, I think. Uh, I mean, to the naked eye, if you've never seen the species, they might look like the same. Okay. But honestly, 
like for me now after seeing several images it's quite distinct and I think if you put the two side by side you'll know that they're different okay alright yeah. that's just really interesting and you so basically in Sabah they are the apex lah. they are the apex yes. predator okay yes. alright excellent and uh, so that means they would play a similar role as let's say tigers over here peninsula, in the peninsula yeah. right okay alright and who are their prey as far as we know I mean what, what are the uh, animals that they hunt so I have a funny story about this Ooh, tell last year we got our hands so the main way you tell prey is through scat, right? You That's pick right. up bits, pieces of poop and then you you extract DNA or you look at fragments of bone and try and tell what it's eaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a geneticist. Sure. So I told everybody, we're going to extract the DNA, we're going to find out what it's eating, it's going to be great, we're going to publish this big paper. Finally, we have evidence, we know what the Sunda cloud leopard eats because this has been a big question mark for many, many years. We don't quite know. Mm. Um, so I got my hands on a, a couple of samples of fresh scat, very, very, very precious samples because it's hard to find. And I took it with me to the lab, extracted DNA, uh, used PCR to try and identify what mammals that was in the scat, and ran a sequence. And then after you get a DNA sequence, you check it against the database online to see, well, what sequence does this match with? Which animal? Surprised to find that when I did that, I found that all of my DNA sequences were hitting with fish species. (laughs) Oh dear. But the percentage of similarity was like 50%, which is horrible. Okay. Which means that I messed up big time. Oh. Someone must have been having a tuna sandwich in the lab oh. and I got fragments of his DNA or something. I don't know what happened. Christian, Basically, oh yeah. It's a really beautiful example of the beginning of my career and how I've messed up <laughs> and will continue to mess up. But I mean, it's not the end of the road. So that was okay. one minor mess up. Okay. Um, I have to repeat that experiment again. Thankfully, there's still samples. So, hopefully we have enough material to publish a paper about it. But for now, what we do have is an immense record from wildlife photographers right? who see these animals quite often and thankfully find them eating stuff from time to time <laughs> and send us back really gory images of headless monkeys. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh So to give a short answer to your question, they eat primates because they spend a lot of time on trees. On the ground... Based on their size, they can take things like juvenile munjacks, so middle-sized deers. Um, obviously, the small sankanchils, you know, the um, mouse deers. Mm. Uh, they can take pigs, but pigs now, as you might know, is completely gone in Borneo. That's it's, right, yeah. You know, there's a massive virus spreading throughout the Southeast Asia. That's right. Um, you know, we've seen very clearly that it, none of our cameras are detecting pigs anymore. Okay. So that's a big, big problem okay. for prey species for this animal. Um, what else is it? We've got evidence of it chasing a porcupine. Don't know what happened. Quite hard to eat porcupines. Okay. Don't know why you would do that. This is uh, what happens when you're at the apex line, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 you're yeah. like, okay, I'm just going to try everything I'm just going to try everything and see what works. <laughs> Probably never take a porcupine again. <laughs> Tried it once, didn't like it. It was not fun. Learned the hard way. Yeah. Yes. Learned a lesson nonetheless. Yeah. Okay, so so they eat primates. So, I mean, yes, again, they are the apex predator. And I guess I want to talk a little bit about how they are not very much studied, right? There's, I remember mm. this from our conversation from two years ago. Yeah. There's actually very little known about them, yeah. right? Which is why you're also very interested in Yeah, I was surprised. Them. You know, like three years ago when I started working on the species, um, I was lucky enough to work with probably the global expert on cloud leopards, uh, Dr. Andrew Hearn, who became my boss and is now my supervisor. Um, and I remember asking him really simple questions. Like, so, I mean, I call him Andy, so, you know, we're driving through the forest and I'm like, so Andy, you know, how many of them are left um, in Sabah? And I was like, well, Christian, that was my PhD. Mm. And he finished his PhD only in 2017. Yep. Which means that he spent all of his early career from 2009 up to 2015, 16, answering that one simple question, which was a lot of work, 
But it's a very basic question. How many are there? And thankfully, because of him, we have that answer, right? Otherwise, we'll all be throwing blank darts and trying to guess at it, even up till now, okay. uh, had he not done the survey. So, yeah, that gives you a context as to how studied these species are, you know, because by contrast, lions in Africa, they've nailed it down to level of families and they know how big or small a family is in a specific part of Tanzania. Correct. You know, they're tracking relationships between mothers and cubs and males and how many males are in a territory and how many mothers are there and they can estimate all these really complex family relationships. That is the granular detail that we're getting in Africa. Okay. Here, by contrast, we have really rough approximations of total population size. We don't even know which exact habitats they exist in. We just have rough ideas. So there's so much room to understand the species. Um and biodiversity as a whole, I think, mm-hmm. in this region. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the threats to their existence. Uh, Christian, maybe you can talk to us about uh, why their numbers are... Well, their numbers seem to be uh, decreasing, right? That's what we yeah, know as well, that's right? the projections. The projections, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So, unfortunately, there's very few ways to monitor the expansion or contraction of a species population. So, all we can do is make models that try to project it, right? Mm-hmm. And models are basically mathematical equations where you put in variables and they spit out a number. And the models are influenced by what we know about their habitat types, right? And in Sabah, the ideal habitat type for cloud leopard is primary forest. Unfortunately, in Sabah, there's also only 3% of primary forest left. In Sarawak, I think the number is even lower. And so based on those projections, therefore, the the future doesn't bode so well for the species, right? Mm -hmm. However... The more we learn about the species, the more we're realizing that they are much more adaptable than we think to different habitat types. Uh, They're much more resilient. Mm -hmm. So we're detecting that in places where they're selectively logged, meaning, you know, there are plenty of these examples in Lahadatu, for example, forest way in Lahadatu, close to Danum Valley and things like that, where they're taking out trees selectively but keeping the forest intact. So the canopy is still covered, but they're just selecting specific trees and relogging that. And in places like that, we've detected quite a high number of cloud leopards um, for various reasons, but the main being that the forest is still kind of functional, despite some trees being taken away. And so we're seeing that maybe there's not so much of this dichotomy of forest and not forest, that perhaps that there is a gradient of forest types each of which have a different suitability for cloud leopards, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we refine, I'm going really long with this answer, but as we refine our understanding of what types of habitat works for cloud leopards, we can add in more complexity to that habitat type. Mm -hmm. And maybe then the projections might change. Right. But for now, the ideal habitat type for cloud leopards that we know is in decline, and therefore our projections of the species also declining. The good news though is that so far for us at least in Sabah, Wherever we think they should be, we're finding them there. Okay, that's good. And that's not the case for species like the tigers. Because there's plenty of suitable habitat in peninsular Malaysia for tigers, but they're just not there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's quite alarming. For cloud leopards, that seems like it's not the case. Even if the numbers are low, we're always finding them there. As long as we've put in a good amount of work and effort to find them, the pictures are coming in. The cameras are picking them up. And that's, that's really 
heartening and that's positive. Really, that's yeah. great. That's, yeah. So I guess what you're trying to say is that if there is appropriate management of these sorts of commercial forests and things like that, that could actually further enhance the conservation value of the place as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And um, so yes, okay, so forest loss and I guess forest fragmentation is is a threat to their survival. What about things like uh, illegal hunting, uh, the wildlife trade? Does that also play a part? Yeah. So there is, at the moment, very little evidence that this species is being traded okay. or hunted. But they definitely do happen because of just anecdotal accounts that we've had with poachers. The thing is, the species is so well evolved to stay hidden. Mm, right? okay. It's really successful. I mean, I've been out there for four years <laughs> and honestly have never seen a cloud leopard in the wild. Okay. Unless I've caught them and tranquilized them and put them to sleep, then yeah, they're right in front of me. Okay. But otherwise, no, it's really hard to see the species. You've got to be out there walking every night, you know, in the most cryptic parts of the forest and you might have a chance. Okay. And looking around, right? So it's hard. So I guess that's why poachers don't see them all that often. But that being said, when they do, that is the question. Do they kill them or do they not? And you know, we need really good social service to understand this and social surveys that are not imposing, that are f- that the poachers feel safe being open to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've not done that yet. So that's a that's a cue for social scientists to come over here and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're open to those sorts of collaborations, aren't of you? Of course, of course. Because it's wonderful questions to be answered mm-hmm. for which I have no expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's no trade. There's, there's no evidence of trade at the moment at a high amount or poaching. Okay. So I would say the biggest threats as you mentioned earlier is the habitat loss and the fragmentation. Okay. Just to go, I mean, a bit of detail into fragmentation. The main thing is lowland forest is perfect for plantations and because it's just logistically easy. Yeah. So we're finding that even if we do protect forests, they tend to be these high elevation mountain types and then all the lowland around it is converted. Which is, the, the, the problem with that is that although we have forest in all these high elevation places, they become little islands of forest Correct. living on its own. Correct. And animals within it, if they are stuck in there, end up inbreeding. And that is always a cue for long-term extinction. Mm. It's, always, it's always been a precursor. Once the animals start inbreeding, you know, they're on the spiral down and eventually they'll go extinct. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this trend already. There is evidence of fragmentation. We're seeing very restricted dispersal events. So that is already kicking off. And I think we're catching it early. And I think we're trying to deal with this problem of fragmentation right now. So that's also, I guess, a more positive note. Mm-hmm. I do see a joint kind of will, mm-hmm. both from the political end, the commercial end, and the conservation end, of course, to try and push this idea of connectivity forward. Okay, because uh, they need, um, I guess, wide expanses of, of forest to... That's, that's basically yeah, it's how massive, they... massive, actually. The last estimate we did was their home range was something like 200 square kilometers, which is basically, if you draw a square, it's 200 kilometers one way and the width and 200 kilometers the other way and the the length. That's huge. That is, that's massive. And we know that that's easily, I mean, that's what, 3% left of uh, yeah, natural of primary forest, forest, primary yeah. forest left? So yeah. obviously that's not going to happen for them. And so that's where things like inbreeding comes in and that's where things like diseases also can yeah. come in and things yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And that will further affect their uh, yeah. future survival. Yeah, absolutely. So when animals become inbred, what happens is their genes become homozygous, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're more likely to pick up recessive genetic diseases. Um, you know, in human, the human example would be sickle cell anemia, hemophilia, in animals, they've got lots of these similar kind of genetic diseases. You'll find that more animals, more cubs are being born with heart issues, mm. with uh, you know stunted tails, with deformed paws. You know the the usual things that happen when 
inbreeding happens. Okay. The same will be for animals. Okay. All right. And, you know, you, as you mentioned, you're a geneticist, right? And uh, I remember I asked you this in our previous interview. Maybe you can help uh, just remind us about that. What is the link between genetic-based research and conservation? And how did that translate? Uh, how does that translate to the conservation of sunda-clouded leopards? Yeah. So I think how genetics, the most simple way genetics can inform conservation is through the measurement of genetic diversity. So we're always talking about biodiversity, right? But one of the key key indexes for biodiversity is genetic diversity. Because even if you have uh, five species of a mammal, for example, but each of those species come from the same family, mm. then you have a very low genetic diversity for that species. So say the cloud leopard. If all the cloud leopards in Sabah are family members, Mm. Right, mm-hmm. then although you have a you have the species that there, but the moment one disease comes about, they're more likely to hit all of them at once, and they'll all go. They won't have this adaptive potential to fight, okay. right, to respond. Uh, and when the environment inevitably changes, you need that that ability to transform and change a bit of your genetic code to adapt to that environmental change. Right. But when you lose that genetic diversity then you don't have it. Mm. You become this monoculture species that all falls to the same disease. Um, so that's where I think genetics comes in. It comes in as an as a estimate of genetic diversity. We're trying to develop indexes and metrics to measure genetic diversity for all species so that we have some baseline data to just catch these problems before they happen. Okay. Right? Inbreeding is a super early event before extinction, but you know once you catch it, you know it's coming. Right. So you can take really early intervention. Uh, if we had these tools for the tigers about 30 years ago, we would have seen inbreeding happen over and over again. We would have picked up these markers early, such that even if the numbers were high, we would have seen inbreeding coefficients really high as well. And we would have been like, okay, we've got to start translocating these tigers to make sure that they're breeding with other populations as well so that we can keep genetic diversity high. That was Christian Gomez, a biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit, WildCrew, at the University of Oxford, explaining why sunda-clouded leopards play a vital role in maintaining Borneo's ecosystems. One more quick break, but we'll continue to pay tribute to some of Malaysia's wildlife ahead of World Wildlife Day on the 3rd of March. We'll have pangolins after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You're tuned to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. Good afternoon, I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's a World Wildlife Day special on Earth Matters today. We're revisiting some of our previous coverage on Malaysia's amazing wildlife. We are, after all, one of the world's mega-diverse countries, one of 17, mind you. Um, Earlier, we covered sun bears and clouded leopards, but now... Pangolins. Now I'm going to play some snippets from an interview we did last year with Elisa Panjang, a pangolin conservation officer at the Danau Girang Field Centre, and Dr. Chong Julian, an associate professor and lecturer at University of Malaysia Trunganu, who is researching our Sunda or Malayan pangolins. And both ladies share more about these tiny but beautiful creatures who are the only scaly mammals found on Earth. All right, so when we talk about the Sunda pangolin, the first thing we think is the word itself. The pangolin word came from the Malay word pengulung, which refers to something that rose up, you know. So that's the way how the animal will react when they feel threatened. So they roll up into a very cute little ball. And in Malaysia, there's only one species of pangolin to be found, which is the Malayan or Sunda pangolin. So it is a nocturnal animal, okay. So it consumes uh, ants and termites, you see. And the color of this uh, pangolin also varies. So it's from uh, dark gray brown, light to olive brown. Somehow like those goldish kind of uh, uh, shades is also found. Lah. So 
and it's actually found in various habitats. So it can be found in a primary forest, secondary forest, scrub forest, swamp forest, and even Elisa has uh, recorded that it was uh, curled up sleeping in uh, the oil palm. Correct, Elisa? Yes, yes, true. <laughs> so they are adapting as well to their surroundings then? Okay. Yes. Okay, all right. I would like to add some. So, yeah, um, first of all, I would like to say pangolin is an incredible animal. I just want to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so pangolin is a mammal, yeah. And then, um, yeah, but it looks like a reptile, but it's not a reptile. Mm. And then uh, it looks similar to anteater or armadillo, but pangolin is actually closely related to the cats, dogs, and, and bears, yeah? yeah. And average adult size is like a small dog, about four to seven kilos. And the most prominent feature is actually the heart overlapping scales covering almost of the pangolin's body. And yeah, like to mention, um, I just mentioned some that is not mentioned. So it's um, in terms of behavior is elusive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then of course, just Dr. Chong mentioned just now, nocturnal. And then there are also solitary and males are territorial. And they are really awesome because they could climb trees, dig burrow, swim the river. So yeah, like, like I mentioned, pangolins are just incredible species. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's, that's exactly why we want more people to know about them and to, to appreciate what we have. Like you said, we have our own species, right, here in Malaysia. Can't be found anywhere else in the world and we are losing them. And we'll get to that, of course. Um, can you explain maybe then uh, what sort of role they play in the ecosystem? Pangolins is actually a keystone species. So meaning its role in the ecosystem is very important because it affect many other species directly. Um, for example, pangolin, it's ants and termites, so it somehow helps to balance insect population. Thus, it keeps the trees in forest healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then pangolins dig their food in the soil. So, you know, this behavior, digging the soil, is like mixing up and then aerating the soil. So thus, it's, um, how, was, how do I say, facilitating the nutrient cycle you know, improve soil quality and it, it grows, you know, it grows healthier for us. And then, um, yeah, pangolins, they like to sleep in underground burrows, tree hollows. So they, they behavior creating burrows and, you know, maintain tree holes, uh, which are used by other species, like what we have um, recorded in our research is like Malayan badger, moon red, small reptile. So, it's like um, it's increasing our forest diversity. Yeah. So, Dr. Julian, you can add. Yeah. Yeah. So, because uh, when we talk about them being these so-called ecosystem engineers, they are very well equipped to it. Because if you look at the pangolins' uh, physiology, yeah, they have very sharp claws and very strong uh, four uh, feet, you know, and they'll tear apart these ants and termites' nests, you know. So, yeah. when they do this, they actually, in turn, they actually aerate the soil. And then also they create, you know, uh, some feeding or foraging places for other animals as well. So this is why we think, you know, they really deserve uh, to be called ecosystem engineers. Right, Lisa? <laughs> okay, so they're, they're just these tiny, busy little workers just, you know, quietly doing their thing. And, and like you said, like engineers doing so many things for so many other different species as well. Correct. So uh, right now, we probably do not 
realize, you know, what kind of ecosystem services that they are providing to us. But I tell you once, if they are gone from the ecosystem, we're going to find that we're going to be dealing with a lot of unexpected problems. For example, we talk about ants population, termite populations being overrun in the forest, which will in turn yeah, somehow cause imbalance in the forest and maybe... Uh, if we have humans staying nearby, they will probably attack, you know, the humans' habitats uh, and also those wooden structures and what so not. So those are things that, you know, we fail to understand if uh, we do not have this unique animal in the ecosystem. Yeah. So again, their loss, you know, in the ecosystem is going to somehow, you know, somewhere down the road end up being our loss as well. It's definitely going to come to impact us, right? Okay. All right. And I mean, I mentioned earlier in, in the introduction that, and we, both of you also said, um, you know, it's one of the world's most heavily trafficked mammals. Um, what is their current status on the IUCN red list? Uh, currently for the IUCN red list, it is uh, critically endangered since 2014. So this is a bit sad because when I first started working on this uh, species in 2008, it was at the level of near threatened. So if you're talking about critically endangered, that's practically like one step before it goes extinct, you know. Mm-hmm. So we are at a very critical threshold right now where we really have to push and do all out to save this uh, species from, you know, extinct. So this is why this is getting to be a very pressing problem, you know, later on. And beside our this Sunda pangolin, the same problem is faced by the rest seven species of pangolins around the world. Yeah, so mm. sad. And then I would like to add that. Uh, so probably people uh, doesn't know what is IUCN red list. So IUCN red list is of threatened species is indicates the health of world's biodiversity. So it's like a barometer of life. So species is listed based on categories and criteria. So some species, uh, they are not evaluated, so will be listed as not evaluated. And then uh, if the species has been evaluated, but the data might be deficient. And then there is also, if we have the adequate data, then the least uh, start from the least concern to the extinct. So like Dr. Chong mentioned, pangolin is in a listed is a, as a critically endangered uh, species, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, just one from from extinct, isn't it? Yeah, just one one step from being step. extinct. So, okay. one is uh, if it's going extinct, then it's either going to be going first into extinct in the wild, and then yeah. later it's extinct for good, lah. You know, once if it's not found also in the wild, because right now we are also looking at captive breeding. You know, as the last mm-hmm. step to protect these uh populations. Yeah, it just it makes you think about our rhinos, right? We, we... yeah. And those are huge, you know, and these are these tiny little ones that are that are going extinct and you're wondering how did we let how did this happen? And that is exactly my next question. You know, why are they in decline? What are some of the main threats? I think we know the answer, but yeah, could you help elaborate, you know, what are the main threats to the survival of the Sunda pangolins in particular? Yes, um uh, the main uh, threats to the survival of the Sunda pangolins, number one is the hunting and poaching for illegal wildlife trade, so mainly for the scales and meat. So pangolins are smuggled through various uh, trade routes, making it challenging for the enforcement to detect such illegal activity. Um, in addition, I just want to say this, yeah, the, because it's true, the high rate of corruption, incompetencies, you know, lack of resources and manpower, so all this contribute to this uh, to this problem. So yeah, that, that is actually the main um, the main the main traits. And then uh, my research interest on habitat loss is actually in uh, in indirect threat. So agricultural agricultural land they 
uh, expansion, hmm. the forest becomes shrinking. You know, there it becomes patches of uh, forest smaller, and then yeah, so the areas become smaller, and then pangolins are forced to use human areas, and then benefit for the hunters and the poachers because they easily access uh, remote forest through developed road and these open areas. And in 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 uh, in forests where there is developed areas like small towns, road kills becomes common for pangolins, but also other wildlife species. Um, and then in, in in agricultural land in near human settlement, it is common for pangolins to be attacked by by dogs. And oh. Resulting in injuries and and death. Yeah. So yeah. Especially for example, in the palm oil plantation, they do have they do have dogs, right? To 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 protect the area, to, right? Yes, to, to protect the area. So, but it it will cause. I mean, if if it's so pangolins in in other species, it definitely will attack uh, the species. Yeah. So yeah, this is some of the that uh, threats that I can share. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Julian, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so that's why we are looking also. So beginning, we were talk- thinking about, you know, habitat loss and then poaching and so forth. But uh, although the pangolin is supposed to be adaptable, but yet we still do not know much about uh, what they need, you know, for a healthy population. For example, when we talk about uh, why the mother pangolin needs to have a nettle den which to rear the, the juveniles at all. So we are talking about, you know, diameters in the tree trunks, you know, in dens, that's like measuring a certain centimeter across, you know. So for mm-hmm. example, they will use all these hollow uh, dens uh, in a living tree or in tree lots. So this is also something that we are learning, you know. So although many people say, oh, the penguin is adaptable, it can live here and there. But again, you know, when we talk about this, we still lack the knowledge uh, to really confirm whether these places where we detect them, they are actually using them for breeding, you know. Because we have to understand, you know, when the penguin forage or look for food, uh, they will go many kilometers in the night to find for food. Mm. So in that case, uh, the animal does not use the same den more than one time maybe not so many nights in a row. So they kind of, I call it like, you know, they have different hotels that they go here and there, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Little nomads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are like technically nomads, you know. So that's why we are recording them like in so many habitats. But yet we don't really know whether they are doing well in those habitats, you know, and whether how well they are adapting as well. So true. Right yeah. now, we are also looking at all these issues that we are not aware of. So we only know very little about the Sunda pangolin or many of the uh, other species as well. So work is actually under research. Okay. Um, now I would just want to focus on why they are considered the most traffic mammal in the world. What is it about these, these little pangolins that's making them so um, in demand? Okay, so when we talk about the pangolins, uh, this is something that a lot of people are not aware of, that they are very highly in demand in uh, many areas. So for example, right now, you know, they are like a status symbol in uh, in Vietnam and also in China. You know, people will serve this to your esteemed guests, you know, like something like, oh, you are my esteemed guest, so I'm going to serve you the best that I can. So Ayoh. yeah, that increases the consumption. And also at the same time, we are also looking at uh, its use uh, or utilization in traditional Chinese medicine. So they are used for many things. The meat is supposed to promote uh, reality. And then the scales is used for many things from promoting lactation, you know, for breastfeeding mothers. And also at the same time, uh, for even for uh, uh, skin disease and what so not. So mm-hmm. that's why it is uh, being, you know, 
traffic around many areas. So right now, the demand is much higher than the supply. So as right now, we foresee that the trade has really moved on to the other pangolin species in Africa and not just the one that is uh, in Southeast Asia because we know that the trade has actually decimated and caused drastic decline in uh, various pangolin populations in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, their scales are keratin, right? Basically, the the substance of our nails and our hair and all of that, right? Isn't yes, it? True. Yeah, keratin, which is the same thing that you know uh, our nails and also our hair is made out of. So there you go. So think about eating your own hair and also your own nails. You know. <laughs> for medicinal purposes sorry no it's true it's true you know it makes you wonder why why yeah you know how we're over consuming them and, and using this as a stuff for for getting better when the substance is basically stuff that you find in your on your own body but never mind um alisa anything you wanted to uh add to the part about them being the most trafficked mammal in the world yeah um i just want to say and, and i have said this many times superstitious belief kills the pangolins so we should really, I mean, people should really stop um, believing in pangolins. You know, uh, a miracle giving can kill people. So it's it's really it's really promised. If you we we should stop the the belief of the old generations, and then we we should move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we have done some work again on this uh, taboos belief about the Sunda pangolin in Malaysia. What we found out was uh, in the nineteen sixties. Technically, 1960s, 1970s, the Chinese in uh, Peninsula Malaysia uh, believe if you run into a pangolin, you're going to be having bad luck. Oh, no. Right? Okay. 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 But right now, it has moved to the level where uh, if for a Chinese to be running into a pangolin, they're like, oh, my God, I just tried 4D. I can sell this and I'm going to get a lot of money. There's oh, no, no such taboos anymore about saying that, you know, you run into this animal in the forest and you'll be having bad luck. So this is where we are looking also, you know, at greed and also at uh, monetary kind of uh, aims, you know, you know, money drives the demand. Mm. And what you mentioned is interesting also, because if we're talking about, you know, them being used uh, in terms of historical, cultural sort of beliefs, right? Clearly, the cultural belief has changed here uh, to to benefit people, isn't it? I mean, like once bad luck, but oh, now good luck because I can sell you for a lot of money. So cultural beliefs can also change and therefore our patterns can also change, isn't it? If you want right. to look at so it that way. Where, you know, we, like me and Lisa, we are working on the outreach programs and also the public awareness, you know, so to spread the news and also... Uh, to uh, make sure that people are aware you know, what we are actually doing for the pangolin and how it harms it and how we can actually help to conserve and save this uh, species from going extinct. Mm-hmm. So this is why we are all moving towards that side. So we are getting the support of the local uh, communities and also the indigenous people to come into it. So it's technically like getting them to buy into the idea of uh, the local communities, uh, the local heroes, you know, when we are talking about conservation. That was Dr. Chong Julian, an Associate Professor and Lecturer at University of Malaysia Trengganu, and also Elisa Panjang, a Pangolin Conservation Officer at the Danau Girang Field Centre, both whose research are focused on the Sunda or Malayan pangolin, sharing more about our delightful little pangolins, who are sadly, you know, one of the most trafficked animals in the world. To hear that and all the other interviews that we featured today, just head to bfm.my slash earth. You can find them on the BFM app as well. Uh, but in the meantime, I guess, you know, a reminder for us all to try 
treasure, you know, what we have right here in our Malaysian rainforests. And also another reminder to keep the pressure up on your MP, your MBs, the entire cabinet, the prime minister, all those people in power to prioritize the protection of our environment, to stop removing the forests that we do have left and to protect all that incredible biodiversity and wildlife that's still left in them. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.